This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Lee Glickstein. Lee lived with excruciating stage fright for more than 40 years before discovering the principles of transformational speaking, an entirely unique approach to public speaking that he developed and used to heal himself. He's the founder of Speaking Circles International, an authority on authentic power and presence in public speaking. He delivers keynotes, seminars, and private coaching with a unique combination of inspiration and step-by-step innovation. With Sounds True, Lee has created the audio program Be Heard Now, where he teaches that you can end your fear of public speaking and how to stop performing to audiences and start connecting with them instead. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lee and I spoke about relational presence and what it might mean to connect with an audience through the earth. We also talked about early childhood issues that might affect us as public speakers later in life. Finally, we talked about the connection between listening and speaking and what it means to be an authentic presenter. Here's my conversation with Lee Glickstein. Lee, you've developed an approach to public speaking that you call transformational speaking. And to begin with, I'm hoping you can tell our listeners what some of the basic elements are of transformational speaking. Yeah, Tammy, it's it's about presence, sharing presence with people. It's uh, having what looks like public speaking be a relational event instead of a performance event. So it's about connecting at a level of essence, breathing, being with one person at a time, speaking to a live audience, and having more of a priority on the presence with, the co-presence, the namaste, than on one's content, and as it turns out, um, the content gets richer when less attention is being paid on it than to the natural connection between humans. Mm -hmm. I can certainly imagine if I'm just speaking with one person, well, that could be a relational event, but how do I create the experience of relationality when I'm talking to a hundred people that I've never met before. Well, it's exactly as um, you kind of intimated, you know how to do it with one person. So right now, together, we're in this relational conversation. And I'm actually intentionally sensing that I'm communicating down, that I'm talking through the earth, down and breathing from the center of the earth and meeting you through the great mother conductor of the earth rather than projecting out over the over the line, over the telephone line, like through the ear, air, through the ethers. I'm resonating with you in this uh, connection. Now, when I speak to a group... I, or what I teach, is uh, 
to be with one person at a time exactly the way we're being, the way you'd be with one person. So somebody who's good one-on-one can be good with a group if they practice speaking to a group exactly as, as if they're speaking to one person at a time by being by having their eyes available to one person at a time and what the, the name I've given it is relational presence I'm present relative to you I'm co-present with you so even if there's somebody in the 20th row and I can hardly see their eyes I sense that we're already connected in humanity either through the earth or one mind whatever somebody senses how we're all connected but the point is now I'm not talking about eye contact which is a kind of a technique which I call like it's eye surface eye contact like eye service like lip service eye service I'm talking about really sensing that we're together as and you're the only person in the world even if it's for three seconds even if it's for one sentence that we are in a one-on-one relational event and then I move to someone else now I'm saying even speaking to hundreds or thousands of people to make it a series of exactly the one-on-one communion that we know so well Okay, so a couple questions. First of all, I'm not really sure what you mean by this connecting through the earth, going down into the earth. Can you explain that to me? Well, uh, if you a metaphor is what trees, how a forest is uh, is one being connected through the roots, it's, and that's where the act, that's where the connection between trees is happening, and the. Uh, in fact, I heard that the the largest living entity in the world is a forest, you know, a particular forest somewhere. But so I sense that humans are connected through some sort of energy roots. And literally, scientifically, we are attracted to the center of the earth by the law of gravity. So in a sense, we're all... Um, falling or our energy drops toward the center of the earth and we meet there energetically or at least the 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 metaphor or sense of it uh, works for a person who lets themselves ground themselves and into the earth let yourself drop let yourself drop so if you're sensing that you and your audience are attracted to the center, center of the earth, you can sense that the, we're connected in some uh, earthly way uh, through the through the through the great mother connector known as Earth. Does that? Does that Lee, ring I a have bell? to I have to say that yeah, it does ring a bell. And in fact, in the meditation practice that I do, I often work with dropping an anchor, or dropping a taproot down to the center of the earth. I'd never thought though, that that had any application to speaking with an audience. So what you're saying is very interesting to me. Yeah, well, th- this is I've learned this through practicing relational presence. I haven't read about it, but in being with one person at a time all these years, practicing in speaking circles, leading hundreds of circles a year, it's like I, it's being shown to me uh, by the practice. Oh, it, it, I didn't even realize the connection underground or the sense of connection through the earth until, you know, a couple of years ago. And as I talk about it, it resonates with so many people that I keep talking about it because it makes it easier for a lot of people to, to grasp that we're really connected uh, bodily y- y- through humanity with, without having, you know, this, 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 this projecting over the air. There's all this interference up here. <laughs> this, there's all this misunderstanding up in this level, but down, you know, bodily through the earth, it's very clear. There's a lot of clarity available. I also talk about stillness, meeting in the stillness, which is good when people are going um and ah uh and putting their sentences together with and. I say, 
there's such an opportunity for a moment of stillness, and that's what we feel so, that makes us feel so belonging. The audience feels they belong. When you could have little stillnesses instead of running on. Now, there's still one thing I'd love to clarify, because it makes sense to me in talking to a group that you could drop your energy into the earth and relate to their earth energy, if you will, relate underground, if you will. And it makes sense to me that you could also meet in pauses and in stillness. But I'm a little confused about this meeting a person, an individual person, in a relational way. If there are a thousand people in a room and someone standing up and presenting, are you suggesting that I actually take my time and connect to someone in the front row for a couple seconds and then take my time and connect to somebody at the left side or the back of the room? Is that what you're suggesting? Yes. And at first, when we're practicing this, we do take a little longer between, like I say, finish a sentence with someone, notice you're leaving them, find someone else, notice they're looking at you, and you can speak with them. So there's these extra pauses. But this is the learning. Uh, when you have it in your being, in your bones, in your body, that you're with one person at a time, it gets more fluid. It's like learning music. If you're playing, if you're learning a guitar, you have to get the fingers on the chord before you strum. Right? You don't just keep moving your fingers and strumming. You're, you get the chord and then you can strum, and the music comes out. And then eventually you can change chords more quickly, and it becomes fluid music. So speaking is like that. We, If we can learn to be with one person at a time and wait until we get that connection, and I, I don't even say make the connection. I say allow the, the natural connection to reveal, because if you're trying to connect, you're coming from separation. So if you practice very distinctly and discreetly being with one person and then another in the practice field, you eventually, it, it becomes uh, fluid. And you know, they say, well, piano, a great quote that anyone can play the notes. It's the, the, the masters are the, are the ones who, uh, who can know, who know the space between notes. I didn't quite get that right. You know that one I mean? It's the it's the silence between notes that the masters get. So there's these little silences this way. Um, but but it's fluid. I notice I feel like relishing the silences in our conversation. <laughs> That's where the pleasure of communication is, whether it's one-on-one or to an audience, that's where the pleasure is. And, we, and people are constantly stepping on those pleasure possibilities because of fear, because of anxiety of white space, silence, stillness. Well, there are so uh, many fears I think, that come with speaking, especially public speaking. And I know that in your work, you actually make a pretty strong claim that you can help people end their fear of public speaking. So let's go right into that. How can you help people who have a lot of fear about public speaking? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you asked this now. I just had a few speaking circles this past week where I had some real afraid people, real scaredy people. And there are fewer coming along these days for some reason, but there'll always be someone occasionally who doesn't even want to get up. So I'll have, say, a class of eight people, and I do a three-minute and a seven-minute turn. And the new person goes at the end, because the ones who are there who've been there, some of them have been coming for years because they're over their stage fright. They just love being up in front of the room, not having a plan and feeling the flow and finding out what's up for them and having fun and, you know, the full pleasure. And they also are always saying things that are useful for the newcomers. 
It's kind of a take, people are taking care of the field, and then the person gets up and they and they're scared. You know, the oh, this is I'd rather jump out of a plane than this. And my coaching is okay. Just you don't have to say anything. See, that's that's what makes this possible. It's not about speaking. Just stay with someone. Oh, but when I stay with somebody, I can't think. You know, I don't know what to say. I said, well, you don't have to say anything. And everybody is softly, you know, the first instruction in in my sessions is to the audience. I ask them to be available fully in essence listening, not to even nod and try to validate or coach or help the person. So if you have a class of eight people and seven have been coming and maybe five of them have been coming for months, and a few of those have been coming for me for years. We get really good at establishing this listening field. It's kind of heavenly. It's it's kind of a special field. You see, you know, it's hard enough to get listened to by one person. But imagine getting listened to by a group, and and you're getting this full body listening, and you're just asking the person up front to to surrender to the listening. Maybe surrender isn't the right word. Explore just being seen. You don't have to do anything. We're doing all the work. So in a way, what what, what they're being given is an opportunity to do nothing. And finally, if they take a breath, and they start to say, oh, gee, this isn't so bad. So it's just taking the tiniest the tiniest step that makes it the easiest possible thing. No need to speak, no need to perform, no need to serve us. We are serving you. We are doing all the work and we really love it when you just let us do our do that. <laughs> Which means you have to do nothing but be there and see if you can receive our attention. Now what 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 it is about fear because I had awful stage fright when I started this whole thing. That's why I had to do this because I couldn't get over it any other way. My joke is I flunked Toastmasters. But, um, the 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 problem people have the, the fear comes from from not having been gazed at as infants. I mean, this is true for so many of us. We don't get the mother mirroring the attunement gaze fully the accepting full unconditional accepting gaze because of all the stress that our mom or dad might be going through so we grow up um with well our neuro pathways we're we're wired to associate being seen with anxiety and contraction and really all we're doing in this process this relational presence speaking circle process is getting regazed and building new neural pathways that associate being seen with expansion and pleasure. So when it comes, when it's really as easy as seeing it that way, people can see their way clear to explore it in this friendly, supportive environment. And once they enjoy it a little, they're, they see that this is going to get them through. And if they stick with it, it always does sooner or later. Now, when I'm standing in front of this small group, and if I'm afraid of public speaking, I can imagine, okay, I don't have to say anything. I can relax and just receive the support of this group. But what if I'm experiencing intense body sensations of, you know, like some people who have stage fright who are really afraid. I mean, their stomach turns all the way over, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's funny that you said you could see you can relax. No, the first thing people do is not relax. They've been told to relax. They've been, they tell themselves they're supposed to relax. I say, no, don't relax. Feel the fear, feel the body, feel the, feel the heart beating, feel whatever there is. We're just here. We're going to observe it with you. We're not going to make it wrong. We're going to make it where you're starting. So feel it. See, as soon as people have the permission to feel the anxiety. We cannot get through the anxiety without feeling it. And once you feel it and let people witness and support you in it, and you don't have to do any, it starts maybe to tell its story. We start to maybe find stories to to unpack how it happened, you know, what's the history, if if that comes to us. But 
it's it's precisely not having to relax that allows us to ultimately get comfortable in the in in whatever wherever the the thread is leading us and how many times or for how long a period of time would it be necessary for someone who has a bad case of stage fright to work with a small group like this before you think they could go out and deliver a public talk without uh, throwing up first? <laughs> well, I have a rule of thumb. You come to 10 of these sessions and you're changed forever. It, you know, it's, Sometimes people can do it in three sessions, but uh, I, I don't know, the toughest cases after 10. Now, I don't know if that means they're going to go out and speak. Some of these folks, they're not necessarily looking to go out and speak. Uh, they maybe have to speak at work. They have to. They come because they have a, a, a toast they have to give at a friend's wedding or something. And then the, the intention is not to become speakers, but to get over this thing that's been in their way all their lives. You know, I've never been able to be comfortable in front of a group ever. And that hurts. That hurts even if you're not going to want to be a speaker. But um, people who are motivated to go out and give speeches they can they can get there in 10 sessions. Okay, now I want to make sure that I understood what you said because it sounded it sounded to me maybe like a a bit of a strong global claim. So I just want to check it out, which is that you were saying that people who are afraid of speaking in front of groups that it has something to do with early childhood, early infant wounding about not being seen and received in some way. Is that what yeah. you were saying? Is that, Do you think that's true 100% of the time? Um, I guess it's not 100%. Maybe some people pick it up in school or later in life. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, yeah, it, it might not be 100%. It seems to be, uh, for the most part, true of just about everybody I work with. But I, I'm not. I won't make a global claim. A, tell me how you came. How you came to make that connection? Yeah. Well, you know, to talk about me. I'm. Very, I had the world's worst stage fright. I was. I was a deer in the headlights, even one on one, until I was in my forties. I mean, this was pathetic. And you know, it's so easy for me to look back and see how that happened because you know, when I when I read about the brain research and what it means to to be mother mirrored, to have that attunement at age four months, I start or infants start locking into the mother's eyes or whoever's there, father or, or somebody. And there's, there's this gazing. If the mother is totally available for it, there's this gazing festival. It's just a, a mutually ecstatic and if your mother, so so if your mother isn't is overwhelmed and tense and isn't there completely, or either is looking at you with, well, I'll just talk about my case. And my mother would be was depressed, very sad, and we literally download their pro, their programs through our brain because the eyes are the 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 entrance to the brain, part of the brain. So I, when I look at because I got that from my mom, she she was she was depressed and pitied me. She did look at me, so I got the eyes. But they, it was it was shot with it was a way cut with uh, with depression and pity for me to have wound up in that family. So I grew up when I'm in front of an audience. When I would get in front of an audience, I'd, when I'd look at women, I would see or in school girls, I would see that they were sad for me, that they pitied me. And when I'd look at men, I'd see they had contempt for me. I'd project contempt because that's what I got from my father's eyes. What we got from our parents' eyes was huge. You know, just imagine, what did you get from your parents' eyes? You might have gotten a lot of good stuff, and you got some other stuff. And some people got really downloads of, of the worst. And But for the most part, in in the kinds of folks who are functional in the world and show up at workshops and things they they have they project onto the audience something of what they got early on and it's not so hard for people to trace that back and in turns when people are up there and they do start to talk about why they have that anxiety 
it will inevitably get back to the kind of stuff that happened in the family that they could trace back to uh, how they were looked at, how they were treated through the eyes. Because that's such a sensitive part. And, and that's where we get hurt. That's where we, our space gets violated uh, through eyes. I, you know, daggers. My dad was really uh, angry, and so so I got daggers in my eyes. Uh, and you can imagine what else might come through eyes in, in in certain families. Now, in your speaking circles, people give positive feedback. So, if I was receiving someone who was a speaker, I would be open and receptive and. Uh, If they looked into my eyes, they would hopefully see the eyes of a warm person, and I would then say positive things about what I heard. And I'm curious what you think the role of critical feedback is in helping someone develop. Do you think there is a place for it? Well, yeah, uh, maybe not around me, but I'll tell you, uh, I used to call it uh, positive feedback, and over the years, it turned into what we now call essence appreciation. And that means we're looking specifically as, as the listeners for quality that we appreciate in the person. You know, is there a vulnerability? Is there a radiance? So we're looking for something that is a quality that they might not even be aware of. Magnetism, you know, with so many words, uh, a luminosity, and in my in my classes in the speaking circles, that's the only appreciations. That's the only feedback you get. I have advanced classes where we work on content, and that's with people who already have mastered relational presence and are in, and are comfortable just being. What I call it is being easygoing and the not knowing, like not having to have anything. You know, being able to be quiet in any given moment and not worried about speaking at all. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's an opportunity for... Uh, but even there, that feedback is not coming from the other participants because critical feedback from participants is like friendly fire. If they're not uh, gifted, if they're not uh, trained in giving feedback that, that's useful... It could be very hurtful. Like there are certain speaking organizations where anybody can give feedback. And they might say something like, you should speak slower. And the person literally takes it to heart and starts speaking slower. But that it looks like the problem is they're speaking too fast. But when you're trained at seeing what's where where it's coming from the the problem or the feed the true feedback that's useful isn't you're speaking too fast it's you're not stopping between points or between sentences or between paragraphs to let us catch our breath so somebody can speak fast if their energy like I'm from New York I still got subway trains running in my head and sometimes I speak fast but I'll stop at the end of a sentence so that kind of feedback could set somebody back and there's a lot of that kind of feedback that uh, that's hurting people now if you have somebody you completely trust whether it's because they're close to you and you, you or they're trained then critical feedback could be extremely useful and there are people who in certain classes ask me for it I said I'll tell you later not in the class, not in front of people. That's another thing. To get feedback that's critical in front of other people is replicating a lot of the childhood trauma we had. So that's, a, that's for private. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. 
This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, we've been talking, Lee, about working with fear, fear of public speaking through your speaking circles, but I know you also have suggestions for people for how they can just work with themselves, and one of them has to do with working with yourself in front of a mirror, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that, what that practice is. Yeah, this comes from... The nature of relational presence is a soft gaze. And it actually, I didn't realize it for the years. In fact, for many years, I didn't I didn't come up with the phrase relational presence yet. I just said be with. And then finally, uh, relational presence suggested itself maybe 10 years ago as the words that cover it. It's a, it's a relational presence. And there's I didn't realize again till two years ago when I started reading about brain research, brain science, about the gaze of attunement, of mother mirroring, which is a very finely calibrated gaze, like mothers throughout history, all geographic areas. It's the same kind of resonance. And it turns out that that's what I backed into. That's what I was asking my audience to give. And that's what the audience, the speak, the, the listeners eventually give. Uh, when they've been to circles enough, is this certain soft, essential listening, which is mother, which is the same as mother mirroring or the father gaze, as we say, uh, the unconditional love. So once you are, if you want to practice the gaze, one of the ways to do it, if you're alone, if you're not, if you don't have a partner to do it with, and it's always good if you can. And on my website, I have these free videos of. A, a guidance into doing it with a partner but if you go to the mirror and just be that way with yourself you'll probably notice that there's a little bit of self-consciousness when you're alone with yourself when I ask you to just co be co-present with yourself just softly breathe and be with yourself, not not have to smile, not have to wink, not have to look away. And if you practice just a minute a day or or a few times a day, you know, a, a little practice goes a long way. When I do workshops, I start with 15 seconds with a partner. Just 15 seconds for some people is very difficult to be with a partner just without having to you know, laugh or turn away or wink or nod or get get nervous. So even 15 seconds in the mirror, one big breath with yourself in the mirror will help you assess your self-consciousness. If it's something that's a little bit challenging to just breathe for 15 seconds eye to eye with yourself without going through anxiety or defensive moves, if there's a bit of a challenge, then that's a nice exercise to keep doing as much as you can, little periods of time, until you can be with yourself in the mirror in a way that's easy and maybe pleasurable. Be pleasurable with yourself, and then you can start talking to yourself in the mirror for, say, a minute. And that might be embarrassing at first. It feels a little foolish, but you eventually you can speak to yourself in the mirror and level with yourself eye to eye. Tell yourself some truth. How's it going? Just a minute of that in a, in a, in a mirror can mean a lot. So that's a good start. It's uh, funny in a way for me to think of co-presencing with myself. I'm co-presencing with my image in the mirror. Now, when I'm uh, looking at myself in the mirror, eye to eye, could you help me understand the type of eye gaze that you think 
is beneficial in this mirror exercise, or does it not matter? Well, actually, imagine you're looking at yourself as a baby. Find the, find the infant in yourself. Or find the five-year-old in yourself. See what works. Since it is a, the same gaze as mother mirroring, it might be nice to uh, to be your own mother, your own dad. Look at yourself in the mirror the way you wanted your mother or father to have looked at you. Now, one of the things I'm noticing in our conversation is I suddenly feel a little self-conscious about some of the pauses between us. And I'm curious, why do you think, in general, people are so nervous or fill the space and the idea of having a long pause? I mean, in radio, it's called dead air, and you want to avoid dead air at all costs. What do you think is going on in our culture here? Yeah, maybe it's really live air. Well, you know, I, I kind of have one answer to everything. It's, it's occurring to me as you ask, because I'm thinking back. When we're growing up, got a family, a lot of people, I hear, like in my family, you, uh, there's a lot of conversation, and you've got to get a word in edgewise, and if you don't know how to butt into a conversation, if you don't know how to get your you know, your full, your full words in, uh, you, you you have to really work hard to fill those gaps because somebody else is going to fill them. And the other thing, which is more true for me, because in my family, there was not that much conversation. It was that if I was silent and people were looking at me, it's kind of the, Oh, cat got your tongue. You know, if it's like, I was the young, the youngest of two. My brother was five years older, so here I'm this little infant, and maybe, uh, and I was terribly self-conscious. And then I, very young, when I was very young, I got very chubby, and when somebody would look at me, my face would get red. It's, I think it's because around the, you know, I, was, I used to talk about my first public speaking was around the family dinner table, you know, every night, and. I was I was the one who didn't have anything to say, or um, and so there was. It wasn't okay when it's your when you're the center of attention. If the attention would be turned, like if my brother would tease me, and I would just get red, and then I'd get teased more. So I think early on, if we don't, if our family doesn't know how to give us uh, give us attuned eyes and doesn't know how to give us space to express ourselves. W- we don't, those pauses are dangerous. Pauses, that's where you get killed in the pauses, right? Got to keep it going. We have a ver- verbal society. Now, you mentioned, Lee, that it was not until you were in your 40s that you actually started developing this transformational speaking work. What happened in your life that made the shift? And, you know, when you went from being afraid to speaking to starting to develop this work? Well, I was, because I had such fear, and there was something in me wanted to contribute in the world. I I felt I had something to say, and I didn't even know what it was. I felt stifled and humiliated. I was a typist. And I knew there was some other thing I wanted to do in life, and I couldn't. I couldn't speak. I, like I said before, even one on one, I was the deer in the headlights. So I, I used to say that I was. It, it was humiliation, personal humiliation. I mean, because I couldn't even have relationships. I, I had. I think I had social anxiety. What's now called social anxiety. So it's personal humiliation and rejection, along with desperation to do something in the world to make a difference. And I just, uh, you know, started going to therapy and and tried to go to Toastmasters. But like I said, it was scared. That scared me worse than anything. 
Um, I even tried, I even became a stand-up comedian, but you know, I I didn't have any real connection to the audience, and so if they didn't laugh at my first joke, I died a thousand deaths. Because I, if they laughed, I'd remember my second joke. So I started experimenting with how to get over this awful stage fright. And it led me, you know, I had gone to some group processes, group therapy, recovery meetings. I, I knew how meetings could be useful. This was women's lib days and you could see the kind of support people were giving each other and I just knew I needed support to give and get support around this terrible thing called stage fright that I had and so many people had so I just started gathering some friends and exploring this is probably 25 years ago exploring some modalities for and pretty soon on I realized that what it took was um, finite periods of time, whether it's a minute or two minutes or three minutes or five minutes, that everybody would have an exact amount of time. If they had more to say, they'd have to stop. If they had nothing to say, they'd still get the full attention. That was key. So I had that early on. And then little by little, you know, by trial and error, I discovered, you know, I started creating what became known as speaking circles, all because I, I my humiliation and desperation to contribute to the world and have a real life. Now, you talked a little bit about your short stint as a stand-up comic. I, I can't imagine that that was a particularly lucrative period of your life. I'm just joking. But anyway, uh, you, you, make a, <laughs> you, you do make a comment. I once got $15. Okay. You make a comment about humor and transformational speaking, that in the transformational speaking world, humor is not about making people laugh, but letting people laugh. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, this is sort of parallel. I never saw this, but this is parallel to what, because I haven't said that in so many years, even though it's true. What I have said is that connection, that the way we connect is by not making, by not trying to connect, by allowing the connection. So just like people are available to connect, and it's easier to connect with them if we're just allowing it to happen rather than trying to make it happen. Laughter is something we all want. We're naturally uh, wanting to laugh. So the best humorists kind of say things that allow us to have our natural laughter rather than uh, forcing it. So it's not so much punchlines as it is stories and sharing what truly amuses one. Or two. Now you talk about magic and how magic can come in these spaces, and I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. When a person is being given really good listening from a group of eight or nine people, say, and they surrender to the pleasure to the listening, to the field of belonging. And there's no more self-consciousness. And there's no performance. There's no act. There's no pretension. There's no... God, there was another word you used before we got on the air. There's no... Hmm, that word will come. Then... What wants to come through, when they know they're not trying to find something to talk about, let's say they have a seven-minute turn and they're enjoying not speaking, then the words that come through, the story, the subject is new to them. It's almost as if that little voice inside that wants to be heard, that, that, that next idea, the next insight, the next story the next sense of what's so damn funny just comes out. And it's like you're at a Broadway play, you know? <laughs> That's a brilliant play where there's a magical moment or magical, you know, three-minute rant, you know, or something that was not expected and couldn't have been predicted, couldn't have been scheduled, couldn't have been rehearsed, couldn't have been planned. 
And those are the moments of magic that uh, I love. And also, there's always meaning in it. In other words, there's a point, there's a kind of an inspirational aha that the whole room is part of. Like, oh, we all just understood some aspect of the human condition, some aspect of how do we get, how do we get, <laughs> how do we get through some of the things that happen in life with the, with the support of our, our uh, brethren and sisters. <laughs> Now, what would you say is the connection between listening and speaking, especially public oh, speaking? My goodness, that's such a perfect question. I, I can't believe it. it's so. Um, what? It's listening. We lead with listening. Speaking, people come and say, you know, I'm a good listener, and I just can't speak to groups. I say, go oh, come and listen. Come up and listen. Listen to us in our silence. Listen to the moment. Listen to each other's essence. So there's a listening that leads to speaking. We have to listen first. That's I call it listening when you stand up and, and you look at people in relational presence. You're listening to their being. You're listening to their spirit, to their heart. So it's not listening to the words. It's listening to the listening to the moment. So... The people who are good listeners of other people, when they get up in this situation and they and they get over the pressure to speak, like, oh, oh, it's my turn to speak. Oh, no, no, it's not your turn to speak. It's your turn to be the center of attention and see if anything comes up. Take it or leave it. Just then, when they start speaking... They're listening as they speak. Oh, the best the best speaking, you're listening as you're speaking, right? If you're in an intimate conversation, you're if you don't listen as you speak in an intimate conversation, you'll probably spend a lot of time in the doghouse, you know. If you're in a marriage, say, and you're not listening as you're speaking, something's not clicking. So yeah, I think uh, they both happen at the same time. Make sense? It does make sense. Or have I, I think gone it, too far? No, I think it's interesting to inquire into whether or not I'm listening while I'm speaking. Mm. I notice that I am, so I think that's interesting. I think I've never paid attention to that before. Oh, there's another thing about that. People say um all the time, and the only reason way you can say um is if you're not listening while you're speaking. Because if you were listening, you'd hear those ums. In fact, I tell people... I'm I'm not going to catch your ums. I want you to catch your ums. As soon as you catch your ums, you're home free. You start to if you hear your ums, it means you're listening to yourself. Now, here's something, Lee. I'm very interested in. I'll be curious to hear what you have to say about it. What do you think's going on when someone is just a fantastic orator? The kind of people who stand up and are the best speech givers of all time. Certain politicians. Those types of people. What kind of gift is that? It's funny when you said gift, and the the phrase that came to me, Tammy, was the gift of gab. And it's not that; it's the opposite of that. They are, and I'm right away. I start to think of John F. Kennedy. He said to have charisma, you know, that magnetism, and it looks to the casual observer, like they're flowing something out, that they're, they're, they're dynamically flowing this personality, this character, this, this electricity. But when I see it, what I see they're doing is they're receiving the listening. They're being, they're magnets for people's attention. They're taking in, like you heard it, I've always heard that Bill Clinton, when he'd speak to people, uh, you know, at a, at a gathering, that they said, when he was speaking to me, I was the only person in the world. Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. Th- that was many people's experience of him. So to me, he, 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 was, he was really allowing their attention to come to him like a magnet. So I think that's a lot of what's going on with people who are that comfortable to receive that when they speak, there's a, 
you know, complete fluency. It's so far from me. It's so far from the experience of myself. I can only guess. I have a final question for you, Lee. One of the things that you say in your program, Be Heard Now, is that the most compelling thing that we can do, whether it's in life or in front of the room, is to be authentic. And I think more and more I hear people saying, I want to be authentic. Authenticity is the most important thing to me. What are your tips or ideas on how to help people, whether it's in life or in front of the room, be more authentic? That's another wonderful question, because that's another misunderstood thing, because there are many systems or protocol for being authentic. But to me, a lot of it is about doing like a way of speaking, tell certain stories, uh, intimate stories, vulnerable stories, courageous stories, you know, be yourself. How the heck, I don't know that there's such a thing as being yourself intentionally. I do not believe that you can be yourself intentionally. I do believe that you can stop and be with someone intentionally, that you could be in essential attunement with a human being, and then what comes through you will happen to be authentic. So it's one step one step lower than the word authentic. It's setting the, setting the attunement field so that authenticity happens for you and the person you're with. Authenticity is relational. It's nothing anyone does on their own. It's a beautiful answer. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I've been speaking with Lee Glickstein with Sounds True. Lee has created the program Be Heard Now. It's a two-session audio program on transformational speaking. Lee, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tammy. This was really pleasurable for me. I'm relishing the silences. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.